friends. This is Mike Dawson, and I welcome you to my Dreamers to Makers podcast, where I interview curious people that do extraordinary things. I am excited to present today's guest, drummer, producer, Brady Blade. He's best known for recording and performing with artists as varied as Emmylou Harris, Dave Matthews, Steve Earle, and Daniel Lenoir. This is the first of three interviews that features the three men of the Blade musical family. While today's interview is with Brady Jr., upcoming Dreamers to Makers interviews will feature conversations with his brother, Brian Blade, and their father, Brady Blade Sr. It is not an understatement to say that the Brady family is a musical and artistic force on par with Bach or Gershwin. Today's podcast was recorded at Brady's family home in Shreveport, Louisiana. It was a great pleasure to reconnect with Brady and hearing lovely stories about his family and musical life. So listen and enjoy. You know how did how you know a lot of it's the technical things, sure. you know, and this is my second season doing this. So you know, you do a first season. Congratulations and you, on the first. And, and you try to you try to look at what you did wrong and what you did right, because it's you know I'm not trained in this stuff. It's just it's what's interesting to me, sure. you know. And so when I when I think about you know who's who's the wish list of of, of people that I would want to talk to, mm-hmm. one of the reasons I I wanted to, to chat with you is because you know your family has a legacy, and you know it it sounds like that it, it certainly started with with your family, and you know yeah. here we are in your home and we're we're having a nice conversation over coffee. It's the best yeah, place, absolutely. <laughs> but you know what is it that that made it made your home so uh, open to exploration of your creativity. Is there something that you can point to that you and you and uh, Brian had uh, that that could be a, a, something that's formative? Would it be a a person, or is it just the vibe? I think it's a situation that I'm going to have to use the present situation today um, regarding my parents, and then I'm going to go back to show you how it affected us. So you came in today. And you got to meet, what, six people from Stockholm, Sweden. Right. We're here in Shreveport, Louisiana. Now, I called my parents last week. I was like, you know what? We're coming from Denver on the way to New Orleans. Want to see you. Oh, by the way, I've got a few friends with me. A a few friends. (laughs) Come one and come all. They have room here. So not only did we get here, show up and invade my parents' house, my sister-in-law, Laura, Brian's wife, brought over food for them for the week cook this unbelievable food so they have lunch and dinner that shows the family a dynamic of how they are now when brian and i were growing up my dad is great and he's loud i mean he's he's either playing music really loud or he's playing bass in the front room there's records everywhere that's how we grew up in our house and and later on in life i asked my dad a question and i guess i have to let you know the situation so every weekend Friday, Saturday, Sunday, basically. Our house was full of kids. My brother would rehearse his jazz ensemble in the morning. I think at the time, he must have been about, I don't know, eight, nine, ten, something. You know, his friends would come over, they would play records, or they would play music in the right. front living room. Sure. They would 
you know, maybe leave about three or four. And then my crew came over till six o'clock till at least midnight. Kids everywhere. And and later on in life, I asked my father, you know, uh, he'd come home and say, hello, everybody. He'd go back to his bedroom with his wife or whatever. They'd go out to dinner. And I asked him, I was like, why would you, you know, why would you let us, uh, all these people invade your house like this? It's like, well, it's a few things. It's like uh, I knew where you were. Right, right. I could monitor what you were doing. And then it's also you were working on something that you had interest in. It's like, it's like you know, so basically he was the best parent ever. Right, it's dad one on one in a template. If you could, if you could put it in a yeah, put it in a mold, that would be it. No, yeah, because you got to understand, we would go to some of our friends' houses. I remember it clearly, you know, and we'd make a little bit of noise, and you know, the mom would start complaining, or the dad, or they throw us out, or something. Right, get out of here, kid. That never happened at my house. Right, ever. Yeah. So I, I think we're extremely fortunate to have, you know, cool parents way back then when we were kids, and cool parents now. They're eighty years old for Christ's sake. They, hell, my dad stayed up all night talking to the bed. I went to sleep. <laughs> right. Yeah. Right. Right. You're running out of steam, and Dad's just getting started. He's eighty. Right. right. <laughs> That's fantastic. Yeah, it's, it's in the genes for sure. That's great. Sure. And you know, I'm saying today we I mean, this morning we got up at five o'clock. We started working on a documentary on our father and. As we were standing on these railroad tracks in downtown Shreveport where my dad used to roam as a boy. And I'm looking at my dad, I'm looking at my brother who, you know, just literally got back from Japan with Chick Korea, and what, two months ago? Were they doing just an Asian tour or was it part of uh, the end or the beginning of something that's world global with Chick? You know, I think they got a global footprint going on, but my brother's in so many projects, it makes my head spin, so I stop asking. Right, because it's shorter (laughs) one day. It's it's like you, man. You've got got a lot of fingers in the the frying pan, so to speak. I think it's it's life. And and, and my my dad's never said this, but, you know, for an 80-year-old dude to get up, Every day, his clock, because I'm sleeping downstairs, I can hear the alarm clock in his room. He's got this Bose speaker that comes on, blasting like jazz or gospel, whatever. 5 a.m., he's Love up. It. Yeah, yeah. And he'll probably get home tonight at about 10. He does this seven days a week. So I hope that helped, that explains a little it bit does. of our dynamic. I mean, I mean, because, you know, clearly, you know, he it was fostering creativity, but it sounds like the academics was, was front and center, too. Yes, Because he understood, he clearly, you and your... Uh, your father and uh, his 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 wife, your mother. Mm-hmm. You know they they certainly look at it as okay. You love music, go, but make sure that you know you don't lose sight of what's important. Exactly. You know academically because you couldn't do the other things that you do yeah. without that grounding. They stressed education. I mean, my mother is a retired teacher. It's kindergarten, right? Uh, kindergarten, but she actually taught uh, English uh, grades K through. 12, you know, when she was in the school system and then she retired. Is that here in Shreveport? Right here in Shreveport. And my dad has been a minister and a preacher my whole life. Uh, he's been at the same church, Zion Baptist Church, for 56 years now. Okay. Married to my mother for 55. He's probably the most consistent guy I know. And I don't know no one that's kept the same gig or the same job for that long. Do you? I, no, I, I, no. <laughs> it, it, you know, you, the, only, the only thing you could think of is like people that like had factory jobs or something yeah, like that. But not know? for 55 years. Not in this day and age either. No, no, no it doesn't exist anymore. No, it's, it's, it's all about, you know, sir, get, if you have a job for a year, you're, you're lucky. So, you know, so, so you're here in, growing up and the music is going crazy and it's 24 seven music academy. Yeah. Basically. So when you were in uh, like say high school, were, were, 
were you a part of any of the formal uh, band stuff that we all kind of look at as kind of take for granted uh, in the, in the American school systems back then? Whereas now it's not so much. It's all about the STEM subjects and the art has been thrown away. Yeah, because of the funding problems they're having. Right. I guess uh, I was fortunate enough to well let's see seventh and eighth grade. I went to a junior senior high school called Northwood. We moved to that part of town, met some new friends and stuff, and I was in the marching band, which was an interesting concept, doing snare and stuff, and getting all your rudiments and mm-hmm. all that stuff. I was a bit of a in the in the in the Louisiana heat. Yeah, Louisiana heat. My brother's always been a nice, mild mannered man. I've been a bit rowdy in my life, and when I was twelve and thirteen, I was extremely rowdy. However, um, I think I was in ROT. Yeah, I was in ROTC band. I got kicked out of that. My grades were good, but I had a discipline problem, apparently. <laughs> welcome, welcome to the club. <laughs> so, right, right. My Army career ended like quickly. And um, and luckily enough. Lucky for the Army. <laughs> it's a guy guy named, it's an unbelievable sax player named Dorsey Summerfield. He's from here. He used to be in the Ray Charles Orchestra. Oh, no kidding. Wow. He was going around nice. recruiting some of musicians from all these junior high schools for a new prototype school called Cato Parish Magdalen High School. Okay. All right. So well, what year was this? This is 1981. Okay. And then I actually got it. You had to have a certain GPA or something, you know, and so I, I, I complied with that. And then Dorsey Summerfield basically changed my life and also my brother's life, specifically how it applied to me. We had a big band with some of the best musicians that I know. Dennis Montgomery, who's now um, who's on, on keys in the band. He's now one of the top guys over at, um, at Berkeley School of Music. Has been for years. So it was a basically a 16-piece band. We won competitions everywhere. And it gets better. So by the time I'm 15, Dorsey says, uh, would you like to join my working band? I'm like, excuse me? Right, right, sure. So I was like, so I was like playing gigs like Thursday, Friday, Saturday with like my teacher and like his cats in the Dorsey Summerfield and Polyphonics. I was a professional gig at fifteen. Right. So I was so my father to go back to that side to add to the academia as, as a learning curve. Um, at fifteen, he was getting busy, so he trained me to be a disc jockey on a gospel radio station from three to six drive time Monday through Friday after school. All right. And then he got, he was traveling a lot and he couldn't be at this TV show called The Hallelujah Train. So twice a month, I would, he taught me, I, had, I didn't realize this stuff until I got older. I was producing a TV show because of my dad's training. It was an entertainment show, 30 minutes, and I would read like kind of the news and I would present the artists that were going to be in there. People like Al Green was on the show. So I was doing that all at 15. Did you know Stan Lewis at that time? Too? Yeah, of course. Okay. My dad was on Jewel Apollo Records. My dad okay. was signed to my dad in 1971. He did a record called Grandma's Hand that actually sold a lot. He and Stan were really dear friends. Okay, yeah, yeah. You know, it's history of Shreveport. Do, so did, did Dorsey uh, uh, in that world with, uh, with uh, Mr. Lewis, was mm-hmm. that part of that formative years you know i mean you're sounding you know, it sounded like it was all like a lot of happy accidents a lot of yeah. happy accidents and but uh, but my dad was very strategic as far as the training i didn't know it he was just like oh go do this and i'm right like, okay. but, but he's he's back there you know really yeah. thinking about it yeah crafting me and i'm just kind of just going like an easter yeah, bunny a teenager, or something right. yeah i was a teenager i was working at wendy's and i had like four jobs in high school right and and so it, it taught me a work ethic of how to work hard but also you know, to get the job done properly. 
Right. Food industry teaches you about respect for others, too. Without a doubt. No doubt. No doubt. Yeah, I started cleaning floors. So I was doing all these things. And I finished school like uh, when I was 16 or whatever. And uh, So was Dorsey kind of, you know, and when you when you talk about oh, yeah. uh, Summerfield, yeah. was he was he teaching you like just how to hang in the band or was he teaching you theory? Man, Dorsey. It was, it was just all kind of rolled up into one. <laughs> Dorsey was my favorite teacher on the planet because he taught me not only about like reading the chart, like Sandblaster at 200, but he taught me about life and what it's about and how right. to actually co- how to exist in a working How to man. be a good human. How to be a good human. But right. then also, you know, don't slack on the plan. It's like, it's, uh, this is this is work. This is serious. Yeah, yeah. It's all about the music. Yeah. Dress sharp, you know, because he always had suits on and stuff. So, I mean, even though I was a punk rocker, it's like I respected what my boss was telling me to do and falling in line with that type of leadership. Right, right. Did you happen to read uh, that recent, well, it's not that recent now, it was the uh, uh, the uh, biography on Charlie Parker that this guy did. It took him 15 years to write. I have to buy this. I'm trying to remember his name. I'm dropping the, the ball on it. But but you were talking about the uh, the looking sharp stuff. Because, you know, when he was, uh, when Parker was trying to break in, living mm-hmm. in Kansas City, you know, when the, when the, when the, the road bands would come through, whether it was Basie, yeah. um, Mr. B. Or, 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 or Callaway, you right. know, they would all, you know, they all had that ethic yeah. about, about not only had you, you had to be the monster players to be in the band, be sharp. but you had to look that part. Have some integrity you know? about it. So it sounds like that he was certainly a part of that school. Without a doubt. And, you know, when I, you know, I actually got to see Ray Charles in Detroit years ago. Uh, I was like seven or eight years old and I, I just completely changed my life. Sure. But, you know, who knows? Maybe he was in the band at that time. It was in the '60s. You know, but what? nonetheless, um, you know, I remember how how they looked, and it was just that vibe, and you just never recover from that. So it sounds like you were on the inside of that mentality. He taught us that but that professionalism and uh, that work ethic. I mean, Ray Charles, you know, came by the school when he was coming to your head. He's like, "I got a surprise for you kids today." You know? Are you kidding me? Oh my goodness! Yeah. Wow. What did he talk about? Do you remember much of that about that? It was quick, but it was intense, and it was great. <laughs> and, and he heard us play one song, and he split, but he dug it. But he did it. I mean, he he, he made the effort. Made the effort. Extraordinary. It was there. So Dorsey, for me, and definitely Brian, I think I can safely say uh, that's what opened the door for me. You know, of course, you were influenced by what concerts you went to and, and things like that. That was a big impact. But the, the home life and also extending out as well to Dorsey as my teacher, those right. things were very important in, um, in our lives. Sure. I mean, you know, I think we, we're fortunate when we have mentors like that. So it sounds like your, your parents and, uh, you know, guys like uh, Summerfield and, uh, and Mr. Lewis, uh, Stan Lewis. Now, he was the guy that ran the record shop, right? Here Indeed, in, in he Shreveport. did. Yeah. But, but uh, Bell was telling me some stories that you, you could, <laughs> oh, you, about the Louisiana I... Hayride yeah. uh, and finding some old recordings and stuff like that. I mean, we're going off the, the rails here a little bit. Do you? I like going you, off the rails. This is, this is a story that blows my mind, that what, what was found in this guy's house then it's it you know they call they call me it's like you know stands ill and and they say i want you guys to come by here and look at some of these old reel of reels and he's i mean we were going through stuff reading the boxes freaking out freaking out just names on on the tapes it was unbelievable oh my god i mean bill and i were literally speechless and we felt so privileged to be able to go by his personal house looking at his personal stash of all these of all these masters you know you'll get access like that and um, you know, you know the go. I mean, Stan passed away. Maggie Warwick, who ran, was the heart of the Louisiana Hayride. She just passed away. My father performed at her 
memorial service and all these great people from this area. It's a whole different, you know, generation that's coming up now because that's life. And I'm hoping that the legacy of Maggie is is restored in a way where we can actually, you know, see the catalog and seeing see things and, and kind of maybe can be sold in a different way or marketed in a different way where it can expose kids to this hip part of Shreveport. Because that came from our town. Right. Do you think that, you know, when, when, when you, I mean, you knew that there was history. Yeah. And you knew that there was a, um, uh, certainly, uh, a, a heritage. I think it's a better way to say it. There's a musical yeah. heritage. I mean, even if, even if we just narrow it to, uh, this part of Louisiana, mm-hmm. um, it sounds like, uh, Stan Lee had a huge impact because he ran, he ran so many different operations, but, do you think it's going to be something that that is going to require some huge amount of resources to yeah. you know restore all those uh, those tapes and 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 get them digitized so that so that the world can hear it? Do you uh, think that's that would be like if you had a bucket list thing to do, would that be it? As a bucket list thing, where I started off actually talking about this to Maggie and it's a few other stakeholders that are around, like Ken Shepard, that was close to her. Um, and in my idea at the time, because, I mean, you can have an idea. And for me, strategically was, you know, Maggie, you really should talk to the Crackle Barrel Corporation because not only will you have an outlet uh, to be able to sell physical CDs and albums and memorabilia and things like this, but also the uh, distribution of the, the stuff is, will be a good start. Financially, it will give you a foothold to be able to expand that to do other things because, in this day and time of quick mergers and quick um, fast deals, that wasn't a fast time. And and I think you have some people that respect that that thing of like actually going home and listening to a record and looking at the liner notes. You have a whole generation. I'm seeing my 14 year old digging wax, you know, vinyl, or whatever, and, and and like actually buying records. I was shocked. That, you know, I didn't know she was into it. She's like, no. So I'm like, and she listens to pop and all this stuff, Spotify and all this stuff, but I'm finding a generation of kids getting bored with that whole format. These kids, they're 20 years old in the house. And same thing. They want to press up mostly vinyl. Right. They're, they're, they're discovering it. So, you know, when you think about, you know, uh, a, a, a group of recordings that clearly have a historical yeah. um, uh, uh, relevance to us, do you, do you think that that, that could be done and if so who you know you were talking about you know certain certain corporate interests that might be willing to support that just to make it possible for in the in the business side of taking those tapes and sure. and, and bringing them back to life do you think that there's there's probably dozens of examples that we, we can think about um in regions of the of of uh, north america or western europe or i mean it's like bella bartok when he would travel that's and, and, exactly. and be a musicologist and he yeah. would just document things yeah but there needs to be like a new guy or a new group of people that would that would take take these recordings and then uh bring them back to life even though it's it's a huge process you're stimulating something here because you know it's a local great guitar player from here named kenny wayne shepherd you probably heard of him and Paul Allen really loved Kenny Wayne Shepherd, you know, to the point of, you know, flying, you know, they did things together. So say, for instance, you find someone else in Seattle or San Francisco or someone in New Orleans that has the resources to be able to 
do this. I think it will be so important. And they get somebody that can make some kind of Ken Burn type documentary or Ken Burn himself do a documentary. On, I mean, the, I think it should be preserved. And it's unfortunate that our state monies, you know, talking about the budgets and stuff like this, they, they should allocate some kind of artistic fun for these type of situations like they do in Europe where I live. I mean, you right. have a thousand years of heritage. They have a different perspective. Big you time. Know, you know, for sure. I, 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 I agree with you. You know, I, I mean, I think about, um, so many, you know, little nuggets that are basically like time capsules. Yeah. And if we don't step preserve in, them, take care, they're going to gone. But if we don't step in now, it's going to be, no. you won't be able to re, bring them back to life. It's going to be catastrophic. And so, I mean, it's, it, you're actually stimulating me in a big way because I, you know, it's, it's incentivizing me to talk to a couple of people here locally that like was close to Maggie Saw one of them Sunday, as a, ironically, and just to have a small discussion because if there needs to be some kind of think tank group to get together to identify someone that could be the benefactor financially of to help this happen and somebody as a procurement director to actually run it and oversee it as a project manager, I think we'd have success because it's all here right now. Right, right. Eh, down the line, I don't know. Right. I mean, you know, when you think about what happened, uh, of course, we, you know, you think about uh, the the natural disaster of Katrina and how much was lost because of that. Yeah. You know, and you can think that there could be, you know, all kinds of things that they're not even, you know, because of, of, of natural disaster, just simply of negligence that things will not be recaptured. Stuff and like all the stuff, you know, I know people that was close to Fat Domino and Alan Tuesday, you know, all these people, Alan Tuesday's house, you know, all this, all this historical stuff gone. Right. It was, it was history. I showed you this picture. Right. Because right. I, 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 I wish you would have been with me today. I just met this gentleman, and they're two older men that did really well in the tech field, I guess. Okay. So the guy with the glasses on, we were sitting there talking about music history, and he used to go to these shows and with his sister, his older sister. Mm -hmm. She loved Elvis, because Elvis started here, basically. You know, he'd drive over from Tupelo for like 25 bucks or something, play every weekend until he blew up. He told me some things I didn't know. He said, Jerry Lee Lewis, you know, wanted to really be on the hayride, but they said, you know, uh, we, 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 if you want to be a star on the Grand Ole Opera, whatever it was, uh, Lutheran Hayride, you need to, we'd like our singers to play guitar, not piano. You could be in the band and play piano. Right. And then Great Balls of Fire came out. They felt a bit stupid. He told- <laughs> right. <laughs> but, and exactly. he also told me this one story. He said, Johnny Cash was on stage, and then I guess Elvis walked to the side of the stage, and the girls went crazy. So the announcer guy came over and said, uh, uh, the crowd wants to see Elvis right now. They escorted Johnny Cash off and said, you can finish your, so, oh my your God. set after Elvis. And he did, Ugh. Elvis did three songs. Dude, he told me all this today. <laughs> the day I'm seeing you. So That's fantastic. I'm going to find this guy. It's my my dear friend's uh, father's friend. Okay. And I'm going to try to get some video of him telling these stories and I'll send it to you. Oh, I'd love to, I'd love to see that. Because he was sitting in the audience. Right, right, right. Yeah. We, so he's going to die at some point. I mean, he's an older guy. So it's like this. It's like the StoryCorps stuff where they interview the yeah. you know, people, interview people, so that they they get they capture those oral histories. It's the same. It's a kind of the same side. Same of, thing. You know, and I think that that's a really important thing. And I I think you and I and you know we're on the same page on this where we we have that sense of of appreciation of history and and a, and also of a heritage that if 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 it doesn't be 
if it's not documented, then it's not going to be remembered. Because 100%. Because, you know, it's not like, you know, Beethoven or Chopin where the music was all scored and written out and we can remember it because at least there's probably some kind of a copy of it that we have a pretty good idea of what it sounded like. Sure. But some of this music that's strictly an audio uh, oh. archive, if we weren't there at those gigs and and we 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 wouldn't have known what it sounds like, but now everything is recorded, you know, because of our technology advances that, you know, those, those things are finite in life, yeah. you know, and I think that that's, that's going to be the challenge. Well, you got me thinking now about that box. I'm looking at it as clear as day when Chris Bell and I were in Stan Lewis's house, looking right. through this gold mine of music. Right. Can you remember some of the names that you saw on oh. some of those tapes? Was it like a like a like a who's who of, it was of a music who's history? Who. I could go on the list is so long I can't even go there. Wow. And it's and, and fantastic. I mean if you look at his publishing catalog that is registered, you see how many different people he had. I mean it's incredible. Wow, that's that's extraordinary. Well, you know, I mean it just it just proves that to me once again that the heritage of 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 the music well, probably not. I won't even say music. We just should say art. Yeah. You know, because it, we don't want to limit it to the to the art form of, of performance and the art form of music. It's probably, um, well, I wouldn't say probably. It is beyond that. You mm -hmm. know, it's, whether it's uh, uh, painters or uh, uh, people that are architects or whatever. And mm -hmm. I think that, you know, architects, obviously, it's something that's a little bit more permanent. You know, if a building is still there, right. you know, it's, it's definitely something that is uh, going to be for people to look at. So, you know. That's such a wonderful thing. So, so the the uh, how will you train um, that your da your dad was a part of? Mm -hmm. Tell me a little bit more about that because that's a that's a fascinating story to me. The hollow do you train started um, around that period when I was a teenager. My father was the host of a television show that he titled the Hallelujah Train, and it was a variety show, as I mentioned earlier, with different musical guests, and then he would basically tell local kind of stories and there was some humor in there and it was a very well received show and it was at a station called KLSA TV because when I started doing it it was still there to move it forward my brother went back to capture some of the uh, same thing we're talking about right now my, my brother went by to get the tapes my brother Brian it's like some of the old tapes and that they, they would use and basically they had gotten rid of everything I haven't seen my kind meek and mild brother angry yeah very often in my life but he was clearly upset about this so it's, it was it was just thrown away yeah just discarded not just not, not like erased and and put you know the prices rights on the thrown away and burned what i mean wow. we couldn't find and he he did some intensive research to find if anybody you know so a few people had strangely enough had some vhs copies of it so right but, yeah that's what i was wondering but that was about it so this would actually spurn what's going on now. We're actually doing a Hallelujah Train documentary on Dad. And so this is what you guys were working on today. The, the main concert, which I've seen you some footage of, shot in black and white, 35 mil at Duke University. We went to, um, I think, Brian, it's, it's a band. In this particular band, in the footage, in the film, the band includes my father, obviously, and then it's, it's got about 25-member choir, and it's Rika Henderson, who's the choir director. But he's got Daniel Lenoir on guitar, U2's producer. He's got Buddy Miller on baritone guitar, who is, and also coming to Shreveport in about a month to perform with that. Uh, but he's done uh, Robert Plant, um, you know, Spy Boy with Emily, when we were with Emily Lou Harris. Right. Host of people. Greg Lee's on pedal steel. 
who's in Clapton's band, Chris Thomas on bass, Aaron Embry on piano, who's now playing with some big acts. So it was this all-star crazy band led by my father. That is a hallelujah train. It's the craziest thing I've ever seen. It's the best gig I've ever been to. My dad, the front man. You got punk rockers in the audience. You got country guys in the audience. You got old gospel people. I mean, the demographic was... So I, I I can't even I can't even speak it. I'm just looking at this crowd going nuts. Now this band has played the Lincoln Center. We've done Fairfield University outside of New York City. We've done um, places in L.A. My my dad was just on the Video Gaming Awards in Los Angeles in December. It's got over like almost two million hits on it. Like the segment he did with Daniel Lanois, where Dan put the thing together, and my dad was featured in Eula Gibson, who works at my mother's the daycare center. Fantastic. That is the Hallelujah Train. And the, the idea of this film of the Hallelujah Train is is chronicle my father's life through song, you know, whether it was in, his involvement with the civil rights movements in the 60s, uh, his involvement with the Red Mass, which is a non-denominational thing of because it's got Catholics, it's got Jewish people, everybody comes together right. from a legal entity. I think it's May 3rd, they're doing it this year, May 4th, you know, to have worship together. So he's always... You know, went after this kind of thing. And also just a level of consistency. So the Hallelujah Train Encompass is really dad's idea of music and his life. And he does it very well. That's that's extraordinary. So um, how long are you guys going to be uh, uh, working on the documents? Is it like open-ended because we don't know what the journey is? I mean, it sounds like... This is this could be going on for a while because he's such a force of nature. He's still kicking, exactly. Yeah. And my brother, my brother is like, some some documentaries get made quickly, you know. Some don't, like the NASA one you were telling me about. And uh, but this one, my brother is very meticulous and taking his time. And you can't have too many heads in the in the too many cooks in the right. kitchen. You got to so have Brian's, that vision. And it sounds like it's smart when you have a, a family member. Yeah, Brian, what do you got? Management. What do you want to do? And sometimes it takes him, in my opinion, a little long to get some things done, but. That's his business. I'll just follow orders. And so does my dad. For being the alpha dog that he is, he's like, Brian, what are we doing next? And then Brian will put it in motion in his own time. And right. it always works out. So we trust his um, his and guidance on this. His one. instincts, for yeah. sure. Yeah. And, it, and it's going to come out the best that way. And and I think they're doing a celebration on my dad's actual birthday, which is May 23rd next month. And he'll be 80. So Buddy Miller's flying in and somebody else. And then he's going to go up to St. Louis that weekend. He just wanted to be with his good friends, and he's preached in St. Louis. I'm actually going to try to fly from Europe and surprise him in St. Louis. Why not? And, uh, of course, we're having a good time hanging out. Love my pop, you know, and i got to hang out with him as long as I can. Yes, absolutely. Nothing's infinite. But, um, yeah, absolutely. But it's always fun just to hang out. The case of what, last night, I'm, you know, the kids here staying at his house. And you know, I hadn't lived in my parents' house in decades or whatever, so... They actually stayed home yesterday and wrote a song, new song, and they recorded it here in the house. And and then I heard Oscar before I fell asleep. It's like, oh, I wrote a song yesterday here in your house. And they said, let me hear it. And they put it on the big speakers, just like when we were kids. Wonderful, wonderful. And I love it. I mean, because it sounds like it's just one of those, it's it's like it's coming full circle in yeah. a lot of ways. But, you know, uh, this I can't wait to see the documentary. You know, as an aside, um, I'm really wanting to watch the 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 Aretha Franklin doc. 
Man. I, I have not seen it yet. I, it's just came out. But I am just like you were. You were talking about you know who's in the audience uh, watching uh, watching the the, the hell you train, and I'm just like, well, this reminds me just what I was just seeing when they were, when she was in Watts, and you're looking at who's in the audience there. Yeah, you know, it's a, it's a demographic. It's a demographic, and, and you can't explain it, and it's just and, and funny. But anyway, know, I want to see that one. That's that's should, sick. My father actually uh, used to preach at her father's church, C.O. Franklin in Detroit. Okay, and. Uh, we went up there with my father when we were very young. Now, is that church on Grand River Avenue? I yeah, remember. I think it was, if I remember correctly. I mean, I was like eight years old. My brother was three yeah. the last time I went there. Well, that's the city I saw Ray Charles in. Oh, there I you grew go. up there. Yeah. Fantastic. Oh, you grew up, you're a Detroiter? Yeah, man. My I, best friend's I, from Detroit, I'm Bob Durham. I'm a, I'm a transplanted Yankee like everybody else. <laughs> you know, I used to go hang out up there and I'd go to Windsor and I'd just walk across the bridge mm-hmm. with a little passport. Right, right. <laughs> Can't do that now. Yeah, they kind of should have Did mm-hmm. your mayor seal the bridge? <laughs> I'm sure he did. Two, two or three times, I think. <laughs> Every time Detroit needed money, they needed to sell the bridge once more time. Politicians. Very, oh, my God. <laughs> you know, that's just fantastic. Well, I can't wait to, you know, the, to learn more about it and uh you know i i, I need to uh, uh bring some friends of mine the next time the 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 train uh, uh cuts you, cuts out you know what may 23rd which is a thursday crazy that i know but it's six o'clock uh if i tell my brother that you come with some friends i'm sure they will accommodate you for my dad's birthday celebration and they're doing the concert and it's going to be full-blown that sounds wonderful and it gets better they'll take mm-hmm. you out to eat too uh- <laughs> I'll tell you what, with that concert, I would I would take everybody out to eat for that one, you know. Sure, you should come up and check it out. If it's a two hour drive, it's it, no, no, worth that, that's that's worth uh, traveling across the solar system for that one. So, Brady, what you know, you're here uh, in, in the United States uh, for a few days, blowing and going. Mm-hmm. So, tell me about uh, what's going on uh, uh, this year with the, this group of musicians you brought with you. You know, I the journey started with them i guess last year i was it's a thing called the slush uh music and tech conference in helsinki finland so the heads of this con- and you got people from all over the world is flying in business merger deals with entertainment companies musicians it's actually quite a great great conference but they asked me to run the musician jam part of they want to have a big jam room where people just come and you know and i'm like well should i bring my band it's like no we have a band here for you i'm like sure okay so i flew in literally the day i was supposed to do this thing right all right meet these guys i'm like can you can you play uh blah blah, blah. you know bass player killed it we had so much fun big bands about nine of us i think oscar ogren and his manager were at the conference doing something as well. And he came into the jam part and sat in with us. And I had uh, my neighbors, um, Jacob Hilner, who used to be Ramstein's producer, and his wife Lizzie, you know, would do some things. So they sat in and did like this cool old Jamaican song with us. And then Oscar sat in on a soul song. He had a great time. I'm like, ah, you live in Stockholm. Got his information. Didn't see him for like nine months. Right, exactly. As it goes. Walked into a cafe in the center of Stockholm. Sitting there was the manager and Oscar. Right. Want to buy you a cup of cup? Sure. Sat down. What have you been up to? I've been following you on Facebook or whatever it is. And um, he said, uh, we plan a gig at this place next week. Can you come play some percussion with us and come to gig? I'm like, you know what? Yeah, I'll be there. I think Oscar was 19 at the time. So going down and had a good time. And the third set that night, they had a song that stuck out in my mind so after the show I'm like what was that first song on the third set and they're like uh, something we're just working on it's called Sober so I'm like I, I'm gonna make a proposition to you you find a studio You got, we'll do it in four hours 
you either have we either have something or if we don't if we don't have anything we don't work together if we got something we'll take it from there right went in they had a video guy there we nailed the song out sounded cool it's a great way to meet each other to communicate musically exactly exactly and then that's when it developed. And Oscar's dad's a pretty savvy businessman. Mr. Lipsky, the manager, is a smart guy. And they started putting together this plan. Now, this is where it gets interesting. Because I was thinking we could just do the record in Stockholm. Great. No, they were adamant about coming to America. So we compromised. We did a portion of the record at a studio in Stockholm. And then I identified a U.S. city that would embrace their music. And I chose Denver. Uh, simply because Denver is now just like Seattle was in the early 90s before Soundgarden busted out. and Right, it's kind of like Alice an incubator. Chains. Oh, dude, it's bubbling. It's seven, eight weeks, you got 20-something years out at all these clubs. This energy is undeniable. And I've always loved Denver from a literary point of view, from Jack Kerouac to, you know, the beat mm-hmm. generation to, right. you know, everything. So, and I thought it'd be a good town for those kids to... Uh, Actually, make some music and have yeah, some fun. There's snow. You're from Sweden. So yeah, everything. It worked out. out. Actually, we had a blizzard while we were there last week, funny <laughs> enough. So we fly from Stockholm on to Denver and we, you know, rented a car and we actually nailed out, accomplished everything we wanted to. We got DJ Williams from Carl Denson's band. Carl Denson's in the Stones, the sax player. So he's got this band, this kick butt guitar player, DJ Williams. So he came and sat in on two songs. And then we had a um, great engineering team. And then. They have gigs lined up here in Treeport, one tomorrow night. They got one at the International Festival, which is unbelievable in Lafayette, my favorite festival, I think. And then they got some Jazz Fest gigs, uh, not at the Jazz Fest, but at Shaggy Central City Barbecue. So no offense to the Jazz Fest, love Quint, great, but the Jazz Fest actually got too big for me. I played there last year and year before. It's just- Right, it's uh, not really jazz much anymore either. Yeah, it's not jazz, but it's just, at the end of the day, it's just turned into this huge commercial thing, and you know what? I ain't into it. Victim of its own success. Shaggy's got the best hang I've ever seen. Central City Barbecue is like, it's blockaded with these big train cars in this big, huge, middle of New Orleans place, and he just got the best crawfish. He's got two stages set up. That's how Jazz Fest started, really. Mm-hmm. So I kind of like that roots thing. It's packed out, but not too packed out. And you get to actually have a good time. So they yeah. have some playing there as well. And people there, they hear the music. And, you know, it's not like a big, you know, uh, outdoor thing where nobody's really listening no, to you. No, they pay attention. And, you know, two of these kids in this five-piece band never been to America before. So they're seeing it. I forgot to mention, we didn't fly from Denver to Shreveport. We actually drove. So we busted out through the mountains, hit New Mexico. Right. Busted all the way across your great state of Texas. I Mm. love Texans. They love Texas. Where are you from? Texas. (laughs) They love Texas. (laughs) I love Texas. I like that. They're proud. So we got to see all of these things and just, and, and it actually made me realize why I love America, my home. By going on that journey with these kids. Right, right. It, it reintroduced me to that feeling of when I was that age and going out for the first time and traveling the world and with bright eyes. Right, right. Because you get to see it through their uh, uh, their experience. It's unbelievable. And right. they were eating and, and they, they noticed something about the South. It's like, my God, everybody's so nice down here. I'm like, you're going to find a lot of hospitality in the South. And that's what they're experiencing. And they just, mm-hmm. they're like, well, we can stay at your parents' house. I'm like, yeah, it's okay. And right. you know, my mom and dad treating them like they're their kids. They feed right, them, we right. take them to it, dinners, and they can't believe my it. My casa is your casa. Yeah. yeah, absolutely. And I think us as Southerners, not to cover too many topics, I think that's a very big, big good point of us in life, you know, with people around this world. Mm-hmm. That makes sense. No, and, you know, I mean, that's what we, 
you know, when, when humans are at their best, it's, it's hospitality, you yeah. know I mean? And, and, but also, as you say, it's, or as we were saying earlier, it's, it's, it, it's what made it possible for you and your brother to have the, the, the life you, you have now and enjoy is because of those formative years. That's true. And so now, now you're creating those uh, experiences to a, to a, a new uh, generation of musicians. I didn't you know? think about that, but you yes. <laughs> but, well, yeah, I think, I think it is, you know, I mean, yeah. I've been an educator for most of my life and, you know, I think if, if when we, when we, when we realize that we, we, we never stop being teachers. Never, you know, even if we don't have the, you know, the classroom with the chalkboard, you know, in, mm-hmm. in the best of all circumstances, we should be teaching. And, and not only that, not holding secrets, you know, we, we, you know, if, if somebody wants to learn to play a lick, you just show them. If you want to, you want to show them how to do something, oh, you know, you, you do this and you do that and boom, you got this cool thing out of it. Right. You know, I think that's, it's really important. I think probably as a producer, you, you probably encounter a lot of people that hold their secrets so close to the, to their, each other. They, they have those walls in front of them and they don't, they don't really have a good way to communicate because they're holding all their all their cards too close to their vest. It's true. And producers, you know, I, I tend to call myself a reducer because I'm just kind of like a fly on the wall and I never personally try to insert myself into somebody's world. I just simply make suggestions on certain things, especially with arrangements. Right, you just, listen. You just, just listen. And try to make, give the song the justice that it needs. Simple. So the song leads the way. Right. What's happening here is not, it's not, it's not rocket science. Mm-hmm. So do you think that, you know, there, there is a Louisiana sound? Oh, without a doubt. Uh, but it's a Louisiana sound. It's just like it's food. It's like gumbo with a little bit of this in there, a little bit of that in there. And growing up here in Shreveport, uh, you got everything from Dale Hawkins and, and uh, uh, what's the guy's name? Uh, play with Elvis, the guitar player, Jerry um, Burton, James Burton. Yeah. You know, I was in Elvis' band until he died in 77. And then he was in Emmylou Harris's first band, you know, after she had Graham Parsons died. This, the history of this place is crazy. The gut bucket blues, the soul. My dad was telling me about like Club 66 used to be on the Cooper Road, go see James Brown on a Saturday night. All these different things all in one spot. And that's what really, and then if you add in the element of the Cajuns and everything else that the state has to offer, you get a crazy, crazy, crazy eclectic, eclectic sound that right, right. really shaped a lot of things in life. Well, I think it's, it. you know, there's, it, it it's definitely something that I've noticed without a doubt is that the tentacles of, of uh, New Orleans and Louisiana and maybe South Texas, mm-hmm. you know, oh, South Texas you know, killer, you know, it, you know, I think of, uh, you know, guys like Gatemouth Brown or whatever, oh, yeah. you know, it's, it's a tentacles that's kind of spread out through the, through the, through the world. Actually, it's, 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 a it's a type of, uh, feel and you can't always quantify it, you know, because like you say, there's so many different, musical personalities, mm-hmm. uh, artistic influences that you can't, you can't say that it's one thing. It's probably a million things. Yeah. And you think when you were young, you were aware of that? Or is it something that's just the maturity of, 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 of time that you're, you're, you, you actually recognize it for what it is. It's like, we talk about the tapes and, and, and the guy's record store. It's, it's something that only now you're, you're really able to recognize it for what it is. Yeah. Cause I mean, as a kid, I can only go, with what I heard and how it made me feel. Right. You know, whether it was being in the studio with my dad in the early 70s and I'm sleeping in the drum booth, you know, because I was in there all night and stuff. And the whole choir, I mean, dad used to work everybody. And it was mm-hmm. such an experience to be able to, um, to exemplify, have that music feel a certain way. And I learned at an early age, church music kind of made me feel one way. 
and see some other movie music and it made me feel kind of another way. So I'm like, had to come to the deduction that, you know, if I put the feel from church into everything that I do, hopefully it'll make it sound better, if that makes sense. Mm-hmm. Not a religious thing, just a... No, no, no. It's it's a, it's a way to make music for, foremost and forefront. So I taught that. I mean, I was taught in the church dynamics, uh, ensemble playing, listening to the singer, all these different things to learn in church mm-hmm. for me. Right, right, and, and probably those those same elements uh, allow you to work in, in in the world as a as a creator of music and working with other musicians. You yeah. know, it's it's just you don't have the sticks in your hands anymore. It was one part. It was one song they were doing, and uh, it was kind of grooving on it. They were doing like ah, I'm like you know, if and it was kind of a group vocal background part. I'm like, you know what? You're gonna scare every kid in the mirror, you know, in the world with this. Mm-hmm. Why don't you do this old church trick? And then recorded three times. All of a sudden, you got this warm. You got the you know so right. small little things and details. Right, the idea was there, but you just changed the vocalization. That's it in that moment. Yeah. So, you know, I I wanted to ask you a couple more things before we before we call it. Of course, a wrap here. So, I love talking to you. By the way, Mike, thanks for. This is a lot of fun. Yeah. Um, you know, we might have to do it again. Get you, and maybe we can sneak your brother in here one of these days. Oh, without a doubt. Future. Matter of, if you stay in town later, you can see him later. <laughs> mm-hmm. uh, yeah, sure. Uh, uh, hell yeah. Um, you know, the thing that, that I always, you know, think about, you know, we were talking earlier about um, how important it is to have a sense of history and heritage. Mm-hmm. Do you think that because our industry as musicians has changed dramatically mm. um, in the 21st century. We, I don't even recognize it anymore. Do you think that the, the history is being lost to the, to the new generation if, if, because they don't have the, uh, the, 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 the awareness of it? Not, not that they're not seeking it, but they just don't know it's there. I find that when I, when I teach young children, mm-hmm. you know, and, and most of my, my teaching world mm-hmm is that I teach immigrants. Mm-hmm. You know, I teach uh, people from South Asia. I teach people Wicked. from 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 uh, all over the world. And it's just sort of, it's the way it's happened. It's not that I chose that. It's but just, that's fantastic. But the thing is, is that they don't know no. about, and, and they're living in America. They are first generation immigrants and they don't know about the music. I tell them about um, you know, that, you know, that New Orleans was the birthplace of, of a musical style. Right. Or I tell them that, oh, wow, when you were listening to that, you know that that Bollywood song you just played for me, that was actually the chords and the rhythm of that was actually um, a, a, a 50s uh, rock tune. There you go. And, and, they, and they go, oh, you know, but, but <laughs> because, because they heard the Hindi, they heard the right. Hindi lyric, but I said, no, man, it's this thing and they don't know. The melody derives from. Right. And, and so, and, and so, I'm always opening the doors to 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 make them mo- there you just go. To, just to aware. I'm not trying to say you must know it this way because it's right. the only way. It's just like I just want you to know the the some of the some of the the background to it so that you understand why that music moves you and mm. why you love it. But anyway, I guess my question is: Do you think that 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 that, that sense of 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 heritage and and uh, appreciation of something that happened in the past? Do you think it's being lost? Uh, overall, and I'm maybe shouldn't limit my remarks to just music. It's just like that. There's a, a loss of of historical uh, narratives and a historical um, uh, uh, importance in how we we need to remember our past so that we don't 
we don't lose the, the, the lessons and don't repeat mistakes. That's a very good point because uh, when I talk to my own children, uh, Ruby, Bonnie, or Levi, I, I kind of stress the importance of history. And to go to what you're saying as far as the masses go, I think to a certain point, yes, they, it's something being lost there. But however, you can be greatly surprised. And, and because of technology, people can actually research things and, and get it a lot faster if, they're right. halfway you, you interested have, in it. You have the, the, the resources to look at things in the speed of light. Uh, one of the shocking parts of I me, mean, I used to do uh, these kind of international drum clinics sometimes for a company called Mapex. And um, I would go to Asia. And I remember being in Taipei. And they said, oh, we, you speak, I just landed. You're speaking to a small group. And I was on the way to China after that. But I was like, okay, small group. So I walk into this. You know, building was nice, and I'm seeing uh, all this cool posters and stuff, which was like, wow, it's nice. I walk into this cl- supposedly classroom. It was like 1,250 students in one class, you know, because, I mean, the scale yeah, of size and right, time. Right. Everything is magnified. I'm like, so I had a translator and stuff, and to my surprise, you know, I did my cool whatever the thing I do, but the thing that I was so surprised by, these kids had done the research on me and my city and knew about the municipal auditorium, knew that the expression uh, Elvis has left the building derived from the Hearst Coliseum, which is on green. They had, they knew more about my hometown than, than you kids did. that live down the street. Yeah. <laughs> so, so you never, it's kind of strange, but, and, and the masses go, I think because of some of these, you know, if I go to Spotify and I'm trying to find some, you know, research on, or find some things on Charles Bradley, I'm not going to get it. I'm going to get his tracks, and that's pretty much it. I'm not, you know, so it's kind of a glance over kind of situation. Um, and to be more specific to answer your question, I think, yes, it's changed. And yes, we're losing some historical parts because it is too much information coming in. And yeah, the brain can only process. Yeah, so you, mm-hmm. your brain can only process so much. Mm-hmm. I mean, and I think half the plan, I was talking to some doctor, he's like, I think everybody has ADHD. I'm like, yeah, it's probably just because of too much information going there, freaking hits. Because nobody stops and smells the roses anymore or have complete silence or, or, or wow. You know, I, let me go check my voicemail, make sure and see if I got any messages on my home phone. You don't do that anymore. You get Nobody it. sits and read books or, or, no. or even get, like you say, get the vinyl out and put the record on the turntable and read the liner notes without interruption, yeah. which you and I would do all the time. It's a Swedish word called gubba. So if you have any squeeze that listen to this, I'm an old man. I still like reading the physical paper. I still like uh, picking up. I just got a new record yesterday from Micah Harold, uh, great tattoo artist, great musician. Press, took his time and really put a lot of work into his vinyl. It, I was so impressed with it. I have mm-hmm. it right there on the table. He gave it to me as a gift. So when I when I look at these kids I'm working with now and how their ideas of of life say, oh maybe go corporate or go back to college, you know, because they're twenty twenty one, so you can make a good living. I might say, no, we're, we're going to do music. We know what what, what we're up against. Mm-hmm. Shitty as the business model is or not, we're still going to make some music. They have that. That's what actually drove me to work with them. They were that dedicated about it. And right, they're not, right. they didn't get, this trip wasn't funded by some company. It's their money. They worked for it. Right. They, earned, they created their own budget. And at first they had a very empirical sense of like, you know, basically Star Wars. You know, the small guy going against the Death Star. I'm like, well, fortunately you're going to have to work with the Death Star at some point. But maybe you can do that. Right. <laughs> exactly. Know? So it's an education thing. Again, it's like you do it, but you negotiate your deal where you have the upper hand and not them. 
And, you know, so you can have some creative control over what you do. But unfortunately, with this business model we have, as erratic it is, we have to deal with these people sometimes. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. You know, I mean, it sounds like um, that, you know, it's it's a never ending uh, work. It's a work in pro- progress yeah. so that we can uh, help the the, uh, the 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 younger musicians, uh, the younger filmmakers um, or, or even just young people in general, just to have a an, a, an awareness of our mistakes, but also some of the triumphs, exactly. you know, so that we can say, yeah, you know, you know, we cause global warming. We're sorry about that, you know, but, <laughs> but we, we can also show you what we did wrong. So maybe you can help fix the problem. Right. And, you know, I think that, you know, the, the music industry is one of those things that's kind of in, in, in a same area of flux where, you know, we, we, we can't make any money from our, from our recorded content anymore, yeah. but we can certainly figure out ways to, so that, so that the, the laws that are already in place that they actually just get enforced. Cause that's, I think that's really where a lot of that comes from is that we, we just, we just have to, you know, have an, an accountability of what's already there. It's not, we have to reinvent the wheel, yeah. you know, uh, you know, I've, I've, run a publishing company for over 20 years. And it's, I was like, the laws are there. What's happened? You know, it's just that the, the big, uh, the, the, the big entities have just said that what's, we we're just going to create our own rules. We don't really care anymore. Yeah. I mean, every songwriter has gone through their royalties going from, uh, Somewhere you can help her make a living to uh, wow, I can afford a taco dinner with this check. Right, exactly. It's 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 unbelievable, and I know that um, you've seen a lot of your friends that you know go through those transitions. Mm-hmm. So one last question, yeah, Brady. Yeah. Um, so if you were to uh, have a, a bucket list, what would be uh, two or three more things that you would like to uh, uh, do before? Uh, before you have to kind of slow down like your dad? You know, it's a good question. Um, I think the bucket list thing is really to, uh, it's a personal thing, just my kids to make sure they have the tools that they need for me to live in life, one. Secondly, from a, from a bigger scale, to be able to make some kind of footprint with kids like I'm working with now from Sweden. Uh, so I don't know if I will fall into an educational role to be able to help them, consultancy role, I have no idea, but I want to make, it's what makes me happy. And when I did this, the, the Asian circle thing, the four circles and how they intersect and what's important to you in life and what's not and finding out who you are, that mm-hmm. was one of the things that stood out. And, and you should always do what you love. You should always. Right. Um, right. And uh, the third thing, bucket list, go back to school. I mean, I only have a Bachelor of Science, and I actually want to get a Master's and a PhD. Uh, is it this? The, is this the economics thing? Yeah, that you and it's just a personal thing. It's just something I've always been interested in. I've always mm-hmm. done, and sometimes in life, I've you know I've worked uh, in economic development for mayor, and I've applied my training, I guess. Uh, but for me, it's an educational model, so I guess it would, that would be applied to more of an educational situation if mm-hmm. I do complete that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and it's a self thing, you right? Know? Right, right. You know, one of the things that I'm working on as a project is uh, I'm I'm working on uh, funding something called a makerspace. Makerspace. So a makerspace is kind of part of what's what is known as the maker movement. Okay. So we're familiar with the word STEM. Yeah. And we're familiar with what the acronym STEAM yes. means. So imagine that you have a projects based uh, learning facility with no grades 
and all you do is make things. And it could be, I mean, it could be anything from the stuff that we used to do in shop class right. or home at class right. or the, the new tools like uh, 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 3D printers, right. robotics, Lego. Code um, writing. All for of that. It's all, all of that. And filmmaking. In um, one vision. shop. In one shop. So That's genius. So the makerspace movement is a, is a real thing. In fact. I got to write this down. Um, yeah, I'll tell you all about it. Okay. Uh, well, what I know about it. I'm learning too. But the, the thing about uh, the makerspace movement, it's it's recognizing a, a need that is not being fulfilled through the traditional uh, systems of education. Yeah, because they cut the funding for everything. Right, exactly. And so a lot, you know, there's a lot of different business models with how makerspaces survive. Mm-hmm. Um, but, you know, that's one of the things that I'm trying to think about. How do I, how do I create... Um, a way to take my knowledge as an educator and scale it so that I can, you know, impact instead of maybe a few hundred people to impact many thousands of people. And um, during the uh, Obama administration, mm-hmm. there was um, a actual uh, South by South lawn that was created uh, and, and uh, was um, uh, uh, uh done at the, at the White House where um, there was all these science projects from all over the world and all these high school kids and junior high kids, mm-hmm. and, they, and they had um, kind of like a, a convention at the White House. And he got to show all this cool stuff to uh, uh, the president and all the staff. And so th- out of that what? idea, out of that idea became um, something called uh, the Nation of Makers. So Nation of Makers is a facilitator. So they basically create... Uh, uh, kind of like a, a, a an archive of best practices. So if you want to do a makerspace in Shreveport, mm-hmm. then we can they can look at you know what are the needs and then and then how they might be able to help uh, a group of people that want to do a makerspace in Shreveport or or in Cleveland or in an indigent community in the Bronx mm-hmm. or the most wealthy community in. Uh, Los Angeles, whatever right. that is, uh, and this is not limited to the United States. It's a it's a global thing. It's a global initiative. It's a very that. global thing, and there's hundreds of these makerspaces now. Uh, libraries that <laughs> never have um, uh, libraries that never had a use for some of the rooms, they turn them into makerspaces. And some makerspaces. of it's just like, oh, we have a few uh, sewing machines. Great, that kids can learn how to sew. Do they have a website? Uh, yeah, sure it is. I can show it to you once okay. we're off uh, line here. Okay. But the Nation of Makers, I was made aware of it because of a uh, a guy, uh, Adam Savage, who was the Mythbuster. No, oh, yeah, uh, I love that show. I still look at the reruns all yeah. the time. So, so he's one of he's on the board. And uh, there's a number of guys uh, that are a part of this. And some of them are MIT guys. They run like the Fab Lab is a big. Right. Uh, Fab Lab, yeah. uh, uh, some of it is um, uh, government based. Some of it's through the junior colleges. So, so the Nation of Makers is kind of a, 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 uh, an organization that came out of the South by South lawn thing. And then, you know, Obama had a science fair at the White House oh, every yeah. year. Yeah, yeah. You know, of course, it's my, not. My it's it's not around anymore. No, <laughs> hard to believe. Yeah. but, but you know, during that time period, during that administration, it was a real thing. Right. And out of the, out of those science fairs became the nation of makers initiative. So anyway, long story, made much shorter. That's what I'm interested in doing. As you say, to kind of pay it forward a little bit, because you know, you know, you know music making, <laughs> I love it. I love to do it. You know, it's one of those things that I always like to do, but you know, 
you know, you think about as you get older, what what can I really do to have a big impact? I have to ask you this on record while we're on, we're just going to go on your podcast. Can you pull me into this? Sure. Great. Absolutely. No problem, man. That's we'll, we'll record. Do it. <laughs> the, the record. The record. And Adam Savage, if you're listening, buddy, we, we need your help. That's right. Because you need to know Brady Blade and, and company here. That's so. right. Well, Brady, we could go on, man. And Dude, I, I you, love talking. This is like the most fun I've had. I mean, I love this. We got to do this more often, like once a month or something. Yeah. Well, you know, you could do that, you know, because uh, you'd be the star power. Uh, absolutely. <laughs> well, the way I've been doing it is like when I did the uh, a couple of the other ones for the film uh, yeah. uh, stuff. The NASA film. I, I would call my friend um, who used to work with Neil deGrasse Tyson. Oh. And uh, he's because he really has the knowledge to right. talk to filmmakers. Right. And so I had him as a guest interviewer. Mm-hmm. And so the way I want to do my, my, my podcast is that is if it's, if I'm interviewing somebody that, that even though I have an interest, but maybe I don't have the knowledge, mm-hmm. I'll have a guest interviewer. Okay. You know, and that's a little bit different and I'm going to see how it goes, you know, mm-hmm. because when I started this, it was like, Oh, I want to be a podcast. Well, me and everybody wants to be a podcast mm-hmm. producer, but I think, you know, what am I, what am I bringing to the table so I can, so that I can have something that's interesting. So we'll get the professionals to interview other professionals. Well, you have a great voice too. And you have a very soothing voice and, and, and informative voice. I, um, uh, this is completely off the, off the record and off the script probably, but you know how you remember things when you were a child and what, what made you calm or some great memory? Right, right. Sure. So, you know, I go to a psychiatrist and all that kind of stuff, but you know what I would listen to at night sometimes now? Mm-hmm. Painting with Bob Ross. It's like my therapist. Yeah, yeah. Because <laughs> of his voice. You got, you got, you know, that. I mean, it just brings you right in. Happy trees. Yeah. <laughs> ben Dyke Brown. <laughs> right, exactly. Where's my sweater now and my fro? <laughs> <laughs> well, the, that's but, fantastic but, but my point is you, you bring you make you made me feel very comfortable and you you ask very very interesting questions to make you know expand people's mind my own mind i'm hoping the listeners you know learn something too but yeah uh, well i you. i know that you know it's it's really important to pick people's brain especially people that i admire and 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 absolutely uh, has an impact in my life so uh, brady thank you very much thank you very much mike all right it's <laughs> a wrap <Woo! laughs> we did it You know, it's so much fun to talk with Brady. Listening to him talk about his father, his brother, Brian. It's no doubt that the interviews coming up with Brady Sr. and Brian Blade are just going to be so much fun for you guys to listen to. My name is Mike Dawson. I am producer music composer, truck driver, chief bottle washer, and host of Dreamers to Makers. Once again, I want to thank Brady Blade for being on my podcast today. All the music you hear today can be found at my band's website, RoarElectra.com or at RoarElectra.Bandcamp.com. You can find my Dreamers to Makers podcast anywhere podcasts are found and at Dreamers to Makers home, which is assignmentuniverse.com. 
Stay tuned for more news about the podcast and these other projects. But for now, goodbye, old friends. See you next time on Dreamers to Makers.